This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. Well, if there's one thing about the homeless issue that uh, everybody needs to acknowledge is that there's been a tremendous amount of money spent, uh, particularly in the city of Seattle, particularly in King County, Washington, and new revelations uh, that have been provided by a um, intrepid researcher in this field, uh, Jonathan Cho, as a Discovery Institute senior fellow. He is a distinguished journalist. He has been looking at what's been going on, and what's been going on has just been astonishing. He uh, helped to retrieve, Jonathan, a uh, 2022 document from the uh, King County Regional Homelessness Authority, which is an agency that gets money from many, many different sources. Uh, how much did they spend? They spent $107,396,057.97. And where did all that go to? There is a list, which is fascinating. We'll post our website at michaelmedved.com about where all that money went to. And part of where it went was to salaries. For instance, the uh, CEO of the KCRHA, who has just resigned, uh, but he may have resigned because people found out he was getting a salary of $247,200 a year. That's a real salary. And there are, in fact, 30 different employees of this agency that is supposed to be dealing with a homeless crisis that have been getting in excess of 100 grand a year. Okay, what is going on? Jonathan Cho, thank you for joining us. It is a pleasure to have you on the show again. Uh, first of all, this $107 million, how many years did it take them to spend all that money? Well, uh, we're, we're just scratching the surface here. The numbers are astronomical. It's just mind-boggling and stunning. Um, in regards to how many years does it take to spend this money? Well, this is just the money given out in 2022 uh, ah. to the providers. So, this so is just this is one just year one year. Yeah, this is just one year of data. Let me be very clear. And you know, it's just been one of the most awful months. I, I, I let's go as far as say awful years for the King County Regional Homelessness that's been around for only a couple of years here and. My goodness, uh, just hit after hit, Mark Jones abruptly, you know, quitting, essentially. Um, and you've got to read his resignation letter, which is out there. But, you know, he's citing, you know. Uh, no, no, you, you said he's citing. Aren't you supposed to say they are citing? Oh, I'm so sorry. I misgendered him by accident. Um, yes, Jones, who goes by they, uses the they pronoun, um, said he didn't want. Sorry, I keep saying this. Jones did not want to go down the road of burnout and so on and so forth. Um, and, and there's a litany of reasons uh, for why Doan decided to, you know, call it a career here at KCRHA. But 
again, I, I'm, I'm focused more now on the actual numbers. Where did all of this money go? How did the providers use it? More importantly, how are these providers holding, uh, rather, how is KCRHA holding these providers accountable as well? So there are just a lot of unanswered questions right now. Again, my eyes are melting. I have so much more data. I'm going to have a few more uh, releases in the coming weeks. Um, but, again, I'm just getting started. I'm just hoping other local uh, media jump on this as well. Okay. We kind of know, thanks to you, uh, Jonathan Cho, we, we know where this money went in 2022. Where did the $107 million come from? Well, that, that money uh, comes from the King County Regional Homelessness Authority, and the King County Regional Homelessness Authority primarily gets uh, its money from the city of Seattle and uh, uh, King County and a whole bunch of other, um, you know, private institutions, foundations, nonprofits uh, to essentially do outreach and to house people. Uh, just to be very clear, KCRHA, that, that's the primary goal and responsibility, and and whether you like it or not, that, that that's it. KCRHA is not responsible for mental health, you know, not in, not responsible for drug addiction. It's the agency's job to work then with public health uh, that's supposed to administer all of that. But it's just, again, this massive bureaucracy with a lot of red tape, and, I, and I'm just trying to, you know, sit through that right now. Okay, two questions. First of all, you use the term providers. What exactly are the providers providing for $107 million in a year? Um, it really depends. And, again, I encourage your listeners to go to your website because I think you're going to post this list. But um, we've got providers, you know, that provide shelters, you know, Salvation Army, to outreach, to, you know, teen runaways. Uh, the list goes on and on. And it's, it's just a, a litany of, of diverse groups in this region. Um, so it's allocated to all of these groups, uh, people who provide, you know, service to battered women. Um, so I'm, I'm not familiar with actually a lot of these organizations. So I'm still going through this entire list. Uh, but there are dozens of agencies. So I think the, the, the newsworthiness of, of my data dumps this, this past week, essentially, aside from the KCRHA salaries, the, the list of providers... I think this is really the first time the public is now getting a sense of, again, where this money is going, who these providers are, and now we've got to try to figure out these services, the effectiveness, the end result. What has that been ultimately? And, again, according to Dones' critics, um, there are still more than 50,000 homeless people in King County as of 2022, and this is from Case RHA, and Dones, as he was leaving in his, you know, exit letters, was touting 14 homeless encampments removed in two years, spending this amount of money. And again, I'm just citing the data from this from 2022 and the numbers from 2022. I don't think it's worth it personally. So I think the governing committee, the the implementation board right now that oversees KCRJ, the governing board, which includes King County Executive Dow Constantine, the mayor of Seattle, Bruce Hill, along with a bunch of other politicians, really need to, I think, do some soul-searching right now. Does this need a total gut rehab? Does this need to be completely dismantled, or are they just going to stay the course? Is there any indication that uh, the rate of, um, of people sleeping in parks and on sidewalks and under freeway overpasses and 
living outside, as they say, that the rate of people living outside or on sidewalks actually has gone down the more money that's been spent, or has it gone up? Uh, sh- short answer is no, and it, and it really depends on which data set you're using. Uh, recently, uh, it, it, there was a study that came out that there are now fewer tents in downtown Seattle, but just because there are fewer tents doesn't mean that the homeless crisis is, is improving, that there are fewer homeless people on the streets, because in many cases, as you may know, once you remove a homeless tent, or, you know, people, you know, uh, are, or tents are clear out of off a sidewalk, they just move to another part of the city. So the issue now is tracking. Which data points are we using to assess this, and, and how are we tracking this? And right now, that remains unclear. And KCRHA hasn't been able to produce that data as well. All of this is amazing. Uh, Please go to our website, look at the latest from uh, Jonathan Cho. Uh, There's also more about city work crews removing a homeless camp Wednesday. How's that been going? We will get to that and more coming up on the MedVet Show. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. That's 1-800-955-1776. The greatest show on God's green earth. It is a horror show. The Michael Medved Show. When he's left to his own devices. What is amazing is leaving uh, Mark Dunes uh, (laughs) to uh, their own advices, because you're not supposed to say his. They chose plural pronouns. Uh, They chose plural pronouns for them. Uh, That's for an individual. Uh, that's not the essence of the problem. The essence of the problem is talking about spending in King County, Washington, $107 million provided to homeless providers, which is uh, clearly not addressing the problem. Uh, there's a piece in Reason Magazine about California which is actually very relevant to some of the problems that we have here in Seattle. Uh, California is home to nearly one-third of the nation's homeless population, and the problem, by almost everyone's account, continues to get worse. Statistics tell part of the story. More than 170,000 people sleep in tents in public parks, under freeway bridges, and on sidewalks in our cities and suburbs. The state has spent 20 billion to address the problem in the last five years. Uh, Liberal Democrats who typically run big city governments have understandably been reluctant to embrace enforcement-centric policies like clearing away homeless encampments like the one in Northgate was cleared away Wednesday. Uh, Thousands of tents lined the edges of Hubbard Homestead Park in the Northgate area But notices were posted earlier this week that people had 72 hours to clear their personal property. The camp clearing took about three hours to complete on Wednesday morning. Now they have to have a special uh, 
police services and garbage collection services to make sure the encampment doesn't return. But uh, the scared and angry residents speak out. This is back to California. Governor Gavin Newsom announced efforts to clear out 1,200 homeless encampments statewide. Officials in San Francisco even uh, unleashed the National Guard to tamp down open-air drug markets at the homeless encampments. Meanwhile, California's official Housing First policy is failing. As a fact sheet on the Housing and Community Development website explains, anyone experiencing homelessness should be connected to a permanent home as quickly as possible. And programs should remove barriers to assessing the housing, uh, like requirements for sobriety or absence of criminal history. In other words, it doesn't matter if you're sober or whether you're drug addicted. Here, we're going to get you a house, and that's going to fix everything. Housing First views homelessness primarily as a housing problem, program problem. Pardon me thus downplaying the addiction and mental health issues that are at the root of the crisis. Placing mentally ill people and those with substance abuse problems unsupervised in housing units does not provide them with the help they need. Even if housing first worked, the state can't afford to build, and certainly not quickly, the number of units needed. We've seen absurd news stories about affordable housing projects costing more than $1 million per apartment. And this is government money now. The head of Orange County's rescue mission has uh, indicated that the vast majority of people that the nonprofit assists self-identify as having a mental health or addiction issue. Yet homeless activists and political commentators push the fiction that homelessness is primarily a housing issue and advocate their usual litany of solutions, rent controls, eviction moratoriums, and additional spending on subsidized apartments. They make the problem sound easy to fix. As a headline in the Jesuit magazine, America, noted, homelessness is only getting worse, but we know the solution, a right to housing. Declaring new rights, they write in Reason Magazine, does not solve anything, of course, and only will make matters worse. A right to housing is the solution to homelessness. Depriving property owners of the ability to evict non-paying tenants and imposing rent controls demonstrably discourages housing investment and leads to further shortages. In reality, homelessness is a mental health and social issue that's exacerbated by our state's inordinately high cost of housing. Uh, that's what they write about California. And then in California, there's this. Baseball's wonderful, and it's been working well. And uh, it, it just came out that um, the Los Angeles Dodgers announced that they have rescinded its invitation to uh, uh, to a the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence from the teen's upcoming Pride Night following conservative pushback. Strike three, you're out! 
The uh, move comes as multiple states attempt to pass anti-drag legislation, prompting outcry from LGBTQ um, organizations. Okay, what is this? This is the most bizarre thing. I'd heard of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. It's a drag group. And uh, here, a, a, a website called Outkick, the Los Angeles Dodgers recently announced that they would not be awarding an anti-Catholic drag group during their upcoming Pride celebration. Uh, L.A. Pride has reacted to the team's decision by announcing it will now not be participating in Pride Night. It's a big They're having a drama. Pride Night at Dodger Stadium. Okay. And they had decided to give a local heroes award, that's what it's called, to the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, who uh, who have a motto, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence are guys dressed as sisters, as Catholic nuns, and they have the motto, go and sin some more. They uh, frequently dress as Jesus and Mary. The group were supposed to be given... Uh, local hero award during Pride Night, although it's tough to imagine what the award might be. The uh, the Dodgers dropped the plan to honor the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. It didn't mean that Pride Night wasn't going to happen. Pride Night's going to happen. It's a big deal. They uh, they write in Outkick, the Sisters openly mock and belittle Catholicism and Christianity. And Senator Marco Rubio pointed this out in a letter earlier this week that he sent to Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred. After Senator Rubio's letter gained attention, the Dodgers announced on Wednesday they were removing the award from the group. And uh, the next day, the L.A. Pride group shared a statement whining about the sisters being out from Pride Night while announcing its plans to skip out on the event. Okay, is Pride Night that significant? And why would you make the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence local heroes? And on the Michael Medved show, as we go into the weekend, uh, there really is an intensifying countdown to um, some very bad news. I mean, the the idea of a default of this country, of being unable to pay our bills, of being unable to find the money to pay Social Security benefits, military salaries, um, basically just the bills of the United States to have the credit rating of the United States uh, downgraded again. And uh, the credit rating was downgraded when we came close to this, but it was much less severe last time in 2011. And as a result of that, for the first time in, in all of history, we actually had a the credit rating of the country reduced which meant that you had to pay more in terms of interest which is what happens when your credit rating gets damaged and uh AOC Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez 
has uh, a suggestion. Uh, she is joined by at least 10 members of the U.S. Senate, which is dominated by Democrats, led by Elizabeth Warren, who believe they don't need congressional approval, that Joe Biden can just do this on his own. He can go ahead and uh, ignore the debt limit and say, okay, we have a legal debt limit that says we can't actually send any money out the door beyond a certain point uh, unless we do something about raising the official debt ceiling. Now, this based on a law that was established in 1917. They want to go back to an amendment to the Constitution that was adopted in 1867. And uh, here is the brilliant suggestion from the always scintillating uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, clip 16. I think the grounds for it are legitimate. I think the president should absolutely have this on the table. And I actually think that this is something that transcends ideology among Democrats. Yeah. We are seeing moderate and progressive Democrats alike coming together saying that we should not be in this situation. The Constitution tells us that it is a violation to not honor our debts, period. And so this is not an area of political negotiation. Okay, when she says it's not an area of political negotiation, except given the fact that there are rules, there are laws that are set up, and the debt limit is one of them, there is a way to raise the debt limit, but you have to get a majority of the House and a majority of the Senate to do it, and to do it in a timely manner. Otherwise, we're going to bump right up against that deadline and default deadline of June 1st. And it's potentially a major disaster. The last time we had this disaster, as I mentioned, uh, that we were in this situation, was back in 2011 when Barack Obama, who was president at the time, uh, sent uh, Joe Biden, his vice president, to help negotiate a deal. And Biden succeeded. He did it. So why is it undoable now? I understand he's at the G7 meeting. The G7 meeting is important, and they're talking about the future of the war in Ukraine and lots of other material. But for God's sake, the president has to be able to get control of this situation. And there need to be a number of people on both sides of the aisle who step forward and say that, look, regardless of arguments about spending and future policies on spending, we need, at the very least, a temporary lifting of the debt ceiling. And uh, whether that lasts until, I think they were talking about uh, doing that for six months or something of that order, in, in which case they should be able to get their affairs a little bit more in order. But uh, this is a flashback to 2011 with President Barack Obama, who spoke to a town hall and this issue about just relying on the 14th Amendment, where it says that the full faith and credit of the United States government shall not be uh, undermined or impeded, but it doesn't really give you a mechanism at all for how to do that in the face of this debt ceiling law of 1917. Uh, here is President Obama, who was a one-time, as you probably know, 
was a one-time uh, law professor at University of Chicago. This is him talking about the whole idea of using the 14th Amendment in this way. This is clip 17. The 14th Amendment. There is uh, there's a provision in our Constitution that speaks to making sure that the United States meets its obligations. And there have been some suggestions that a president could use that language to basically ignore this debt ceiling rule, which is a statutory rule. It's not a constitutional rule. I have talked to my lawyers. They are not persuaded that that is a winning argument. Uh, so the challenge for me is to make sure that we do not default. Yeah, and that we do not default and that it, it legally holds up. Uh, you you don't uh, you can't avoid defaulting simply by saying oh we're not defaulting, and uh, now we're going to authorize this money. Uh, there was also this. I mean, sometimes we we are such a compassionate people, and I think we truly are. And sometimes Americans become obsessed with unfortunate cases and even if there's a, an individual with a very very lengthy criminal record and 42 arrests that was true for Jordan Neely, Neely when he dies at a very young age he's only 30 years old when he dies because he was losing control in the subway and scaring other riders and there was an attempt to subdue him which went terribly wrong he choked to death uh, but uh, Reverend Al Sharpton saw fit to deliver a eulogy for Jordan Neely uh, it sounded like this clip 7 when I first got the call about Jordan and later talked with Johnny Green who is pastor here, and Johnny Green told me of how Jordan's mother was killed. And her funeral was right here. And Jordan sat right there and watched his mother funeralized, who'd been chopped up. And he'd never been the same. Jordan was not annoying someone on the train. Jordan was screaming for help. We keep criminalizing people with mental illness. People keep criminalizing people that need help. They don't need abuse. They need help. But they don't get help unless they are committed. This is part of the problem. This is part of the homeless crisis, too. We don't have the ability to commit people who are out of control and incapable of um, basically dealing with their own situations. Uh, there, uh, uh, Sharpton went on in the eulogy to slam Governor DeSantis uh, for calling Daniel Penny the man who subdued Jordan Neely and ended up choking him uh, for calling uh, Daniel Penny a good Samaritan. Uh, this is not a, an argument of high biblical scholarship. Coming back, a couple of movies that uh, 
some of which have some real values, uh, including air now streaming on Amazon Prime. That and more coming up on the Medved Show. From politics to pop culture and from coast to coast, this is the Michael Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved Show, there are two uh, big movies that are streaming starting today. And uh, very easy to see and maybe even worthwhile seeing, involving some of the biggest stars in Hollywood, uh, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, Michael J. Fox. Uh, what are the films? Well, this fanfare from Hollywood. Air is uh, the name of a uh, movie that may surprise you, uh, whether or not you're, you're interested in athletic footwear uh, that is in the Nike brand, uh, or you, whether or not you're interested in professional basketball, uh, because this has to do with the connection between professional basketball and uh, actually selling shoes. Uh, this is a film that will fascinate you with a team that has been together uh, for quite a while, um, going back to Goodwill Hunting, you may even remember. Uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, uh, they worked together in another film that I think was one of the more underrated films of recent years, a film called The Duel from uh, Ridley Scott, which was a remarkable film set in... Uh, medieval France. But this film is set mostly in Portland, Oregon, a little bit in North Carolina, and has to do with uh, trying to secure the services of Michael Jordan to be a symbol for a struggling shoe company called Nike. Listen. You know when you get a feeling? I'm doing this 20 years, I've never had a feeling like this. You're gonna see exactly what I see. Which is what? Greatness. I need the greatest basketball shoe that's ever been made. What's the plan? We build a shoe line around just him. For a rookie who's never set foot on an NBA court. Who's the player? Michael Jordan. Do you typically show up at people's front doors unannounced? I, I was told not to call. Oh, man. Here we go. A shoe is just a shoe. Until my son steps into it. Until my son steps into it. That's Viola Davis, who plays Michael Jordan's mother. What's fascinating about this story is that the people who participated in it have looked at this movie and actually recognized themselves and recognized the accuracy of what they're talking about. The central character, really, is not Michael Jordan. Uh, you only see sort of... Uh, an actor standing in for Michael Jordan, and you see him from behind and very vaguely. But you see his parents, uh, Viola Davis again playing his mother. And uh, Phil Knight, the head of Nike, is uh, well played by Ben Affleck, who also directed this film. And you see some of his eccentricity, his indulgence, his arrogance... And also the fact that he is gives way a little bit to somebody who is trying to coordinate the athletic promotions of the shoes 
for a company that at the time was running well behind uh, Converse, which was a leading brand of athletic shoe, and Adidas. And uh, how did they get to be on top, as Nike was, through Air Jordans, uh, through actually finding the right individual to symbolize exactly what they were selling. And uh, that story is uh, really the Matt Damon story. He plays a troubled character who sees this one idea, this one attempt at uh, footwear and basketball greatness to be his true purpose and unattained purpose in life. Film is moving. It's fascinating. It is thoroughly well done. Every performance, Jason Bateman plays an, effect of, uh, an executive at Nike. Uh, the interaction of the characters and their relationships are fine. It is rated R, as far as I can tell, entirely for language. Uh, but uh, three stars for the very fine air, which really does get off the ground and take flight. Um, Michael J. Fox uh, has a remarkable story that you probably already know something about. He became, because of uh, Family Ties, the TV show, and then the Back to the Future movies, he became one of the biggest stars in Hollywood, even though he's a very short individual. But then at the height of his fame and uh, his engagement with the whole Hollywood mechanism, he developed Parkinson's disease. And uh, what the film is really about, using uh, intimate interviews with uh, Michael J. Fox and uh, and. Uh, some film clips from his past movie work, behind-the-scenes shots of his movie work, and some home movies uh, of his family and uh, how he grew up and how he struggled with a devastating disease. Uh, some of the confessions and some of the talking directly to the audience with startling intimacy sounds like this. What did it mean to be still? I wouldn't know I was ever still. I get it. I was big. I was bigger than bubblegum. I woke up and I noticed my pinky. Auto-animated. Parkinson's disease. I told Tracy the news. In sickness and in health, I remember her whispering. No one outside of my family knew. There was only one reason I took these pills. To hide. But all those years of hiding was taking me away. The sad sack story is Michael J. Fox gets this debilitating disease and it crushes him. Yeah, that's boring. And yeah, and that's not what happened it's uh it, the, the he's a fascinating character he's amazingly articulate and uh, again uh what the film emphasizes above everything is the importance of marriage and family and connection especially with some of the hardships that uh, michael j fox endured the film is directed by davis guggenheim who did a terrific film about American education a couple of years ago called Waiting for Superman. And uh, he's uh, the son of uh, a, 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 another Guggenheim who was a terrific political ad maker. This, this film is not political, and it's impossible not to feel deeply sympathetic for Michael Jordan and particularly for his wife, Tracy Pollan, 
herself a very uh, gifted and and uh, charismatic actress. And uh, these people come across almost unguardedly uh, talking about some of the challenges of uh, a disease where you you literally lose control. And uh, it's inspiring. Uh, it's completely gripping and utterly fascinating and uh, may change what you think and feel about this devastating illness of Parkinson's disease. Uh, the uh, film is rated R, again, almost entirely for language. There's no violent or uh, graphically sexual scene in it. Uh, it's streaming on Apple TV Plus and uh, well deserves three stars. Uh, fascinating to watch. Coming up next week, uh, we all are familiar with Abraham Lincoln, right? But uh, many people remain, if not ignorant, at least unaware of his profound religious transformation that occurred just as America was entering the trial, the unspeakable trial of the Civil War. The book is called Lincoln's God Will Speak to the Author, uh, coming up next week. Also, World Cup 20. 26 fans uh, have been told, don't travel to the USA. I, who, who knew? We're supposed to be the host for the World Cup in 2026. Why not? Don't travel to the USA because of mass shootings and killing sprees. Who's uh, warning people against the USA? And speaking of athletics, uh, a WNBA player, Brittany Griner, previously had protested the national anthem but uh, she said that the star-spangled banner hit her differently after she was freed from Russia she stood up for the anthem to honor it on May 12th of this year uh, what changed did the anthem change and last this week the week concluding now Washington Examiner is asking the question, was this the week Ukraine turned the tide in the war with Russia? And American Spectator has a piece that says, the more Trump is attacked, the better he does.